We're in James chapter 4 this morning, and uh, the title of my sermon is Too Big for Our Britches. And uh, for, for some of us, you say, man, that's a problem. I, I need to hit the gym. But we're not talking about that kind of being too big for our britches. We're talking about uh, overestimating ourselves and uh, not seeing ourselves in an accurate light. Uh, and so we're in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17, as we work our way through this epistle written by the half-brother of Jesus, James. Um, a number of years ago, there was a many, many years ago, back in the, the 50s, there was a, a man who was the governor of Massachusetts. His name was Christian Herter. And uh, Christian Herter was running for a second term in office, and he was out on the trail, as we've seen on TV, uh, chasing down votes. And, and you know how that goes. I mean, you just spend so much time uh, out, you know, shaking hands and kind of rubbing shoulders with folks and trying to, to gain people's confidence. And this fellow had been all day at it, uh, trying to earn his second term in office as the governor of Massachusetts. And he had completely missed lunch. And I don't know about you. We talked about fasting this morning in Sunday school a little bit. I don't know about you, but, uh, but man, when I miss lunch, I'm in a foul mood about 2, 2 p.m. Uh, but this fellow had missed lunch, and he, so he came to a, a church where they were having a barbecue on the grounds. And so he, he gets in line, and he grabs a plate, and he's going his way through, uh, and he comes to the, the part where they serve the chicken. There's always fried chicken at a good church dinner, right? And so he's going through, he's got his plate in his hand, and he gets to the lady who is uh, serving the chicken, and uh, she puts a piece on his plate, and then quickly moves along to the next individual and goes to put another piece of chicken on the next plate as it's coming through the line. And uh, he, he looked at her and he said, excuse me, he said, do you mind if I have a second piece of, uh, of chicken? And she said, well, I'm sorry, sir, she said, I'm only supposed to give one piece of chicken uh, to one person as they come through. And he says, but I'm starved. You don't understand. I missed lunch. I haven't eaten anything. And she says, uh, well, I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to do that. Only one to a customer. And so Governor Herter was normally a modest and unassuming man. He didn't like to do this sort of thing. But this time he decided, I'm going to throw my weight around. Uh, I'm going to tell this lady who I am. And so uh, he says, uh, excuse me, ma'am, do you know who I am? And she says, um, no. He says, I'm the governor of your state. And she goes, well, do you know who I am? He says, no. She says, well, I'm the lady in charge of the chicken, so you can just move it along, mister. (laughs) And so his attempt to throw his weight around uh, just completely went down the drain. Uh, There was no second piece of chicken for Governor Herter. And nobody likes to admit this, but from time to time, we all get a little too big for our britches, don't we? Uh, sometimes we want to throw our weight around and say, do you know who I am? Do you know what I do? Do you know how much I make? Do you know what I drive? Do you know my family name? And you should give me uh, what, you know, the, the thing that's coming to me. Um, we say that you're a little too big for your britches, right? That's a good southern way. If you're saying, man, I'm, this is my first time below the Mason-Dixon line. I have no idea what you're talking about britches. Let me explain. If you're too big for your britches, uh, you've kind of got an inflated ego. You, you've, you think you know, that you're more important than you are. Uh, that you, you're reading your own press. But I was thinking about this week, when we look at uh, James chapter 4, that's essentially the heartbeat of this passage, is that James is trying to, to rid the sin of being too big for uh, their britches, that people are overestimating themselves, and they're attempting to do some things that only God can and, and should do. And I wonder sometimes, if this smug little sin 
is tucked away in our hearts. You know, we have blind spots. All of us have blind spots. Things that we miss. Things that other people that are going down the road along the side of us can see. And if this is one of our blind spots, if being too big for our britches is tucked away in our hearts, are we going to see it? Chances are no. And second, do we have anybody in our life that will look at us and say, hey, I need to talk to you about your waistline just a little bit uh, today. In our text today, James writes to remind us that we have a sinful tendency to act more important than we really are. Sometimes uh, we may think it's warranted and sometimes we've kind of trumped up our idea about ourselves. But he cautions us against two things specifically, criticizing other Christians, criticizing other Christians, and then secondly, making our plans without considering God's plans. And what we see when we kind of pair these two passages together, they look very different at first. You look like we're talking about criticism, and then we're talking about uh, making our plans for the day or the week or whatever it is. Both of these actually come from the same arrogant and proud heart that says to God, I'm the one that belongs on the throne and I get to call the shots. Uh, I was thinking as I listened to Nathan's kid sermon this morning, we, we did not collaborate on this at all. And we're going to sing an invitation chorus this, uh, at the end of our time this morning that says, Make my heart your throne. And, and it's just amazing how God puts some of these things together as we, uh, as we gather to study His Word. So let's look at James chapter 4, and, uh, and we're going to walk through together verse 11 through 17. The first truth we come to this morning in verse 11 and 12 is James says very clearly, Don't criticize your Christian brothers and sisters. Don't criticize your Christian brothers and sisters. You say, why did you throw the word Christian? You know, who's my brother, who's my sister? Well, we need to go back to who this, this letter was written to. James addressed this letter to the church about the church. And what that means is this. He's addressing a problem that is taking place inside the lives of the people that are coming together for worship in the church. He's not saying it's okay for us to go out in the world and to criticize other people because, hey, they don't belong to the church. They're not believers. But what he's dealing with is the sin of this, tearing people down who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just began to follow cross-references this week in our, in our Bible And as I was looking, you know, it just goes one place to the next, to the next, to the next, where it seems like it talks over and over about criticizing and tearing others down that are in the family of God. And how much of a sin that is because we are destroying our own family from within. And so let's listen to verse 11 and 12 together this morning. I'm reading from the Holman Christian today. It says, don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So I was kind of trying to track the argument that James is putting together, the logic behind what he's saying, and here's the way I understand it. Criticism is malicious, judgmental speech about someone else. So when we start to criticize, here's what we're doing. We are failing to keep the royal law. Do you remember in chapter 2, James talks about the royal law, to love our neighbor as ourself, to be uh, people of love. And so if we're not loving others, but instead we're criticizing and judging them in place of loving them, then here's what we're doing. We're acting as if we are above the royal law. 
We look sometimes on TV at celebrities and, and people that make decisions where they act like they are above the law. And we think to ourselves, they must just think that they are not submissive to the laws of our country. They can do whatever they want. But when we criticize and we judge, what James is saying is you are putting yourself in the place of God. You are sitting, I'm so glad we left this here this morning. I took it out in the hallway because I was wondering, why do they put one chair here and there's no chair here? (laughs) I removed Nathan's object and he had to bring it back in. But I'm so glad this is here because this is a perfect picture of what it is. We put ourselves on the throne of God where only he belongs when we criticize and we look down and tear down others with our words. And so we act like we're superior instead of submissive to the law. James says this, in essence, this attitude of superiority comes from someone who thinks they belong here. When we criticize, when we tear down, when we look down on others as if we are able to judge all of their thoughts and motives, we think we're sitting in this chair. And we are on dangerous ground at that point. Because there's only one who can fit in this chair. If I try to climb up in this chair, or let's take the smallest child in this room. If a two-year-old tries to climb up in this chair, they're going to struggle to get up in there for one thing. And then when they sit down in it, you're going to look at them and go, you just don't belong there. That's essentially what happens when we attempt to criticize and to judge others. He says there's one lawgiver, there's one judge, and that's God. It's not us. When you think about it, just from a logical, worldly standpoint, this makes plain old horse sense, doesn't it? Because nobody likes to be judged. We all say, you know, only God can judge me. No one can judge me. In fact, uh, there's several basketball players in the NBA, if you're watching the Olympics, you may see, that, that have a tattoo that says, only God can judge me. And I think sometimes that may be, you know, licensed to say, you know, you can't say anything to me or whatever, I'm not going to listen to you. Whatever that, that is, that's not important. But the essence is this, we all know as people that God is the only judge. But sometimes what do we do to people around us? We, like little two-year-olds, try to climb up in the throne, and we try to point fingers, and we try to judge people. How often are we guilty of this? You say this morning, no, not me, I I don't judge people like that. You're talking to the person beside me, right? Well, you just judged them. You're talking to someone else, you're not talking to me. Well, maybe you say, I don't do that. Maybe you don't. But maybe you do, and worse, you don't realize it. Let me give you a couple ways that we're real slick about this judging thing. See if you've ever said this before. Now, stop me if I'm wrong, but dot, dot, dot. Listen, I'm not trying to be critical of so-and-so, but dot, dot, dot. Maybe I really shouldn't say this about him or her, but dot, dot, dot. I mean, I really like them as a person and everything, but dot, dot, dot. Sometimes we like to, to kind of, if I could borrow this analogy, put makeup on the, on the criticism. And we like to make it look as pretty as we possibly can, but underneath that exterior, it's still ugly criticism, and it really points to our own heart. Jeremiah says this, chapter 17, I can't even know my own heart, so if I can't know my heart, how can I know yours? If we cannot truthfully know what's going on inside of here with perfect omniscience, perfect knowledge, how can we know what's going on in somebody else's heart? If I judge them because I think I know why they did a certain thing, then that means this. I must know all of the details involved in the decision that they made. And if I know all of the details that went into the decision that they made, 
then that means I'm only one person, God. Because only God has that kind of omniscience. And we know in about five minutes of life how quickly we can fall, how quickly we can stumble. We're simply not God. F.B. Meyer, who was a Baptist pastor in England, a friend and contemporary of D.L. Moody, said this. When we see a brother or sister in sin, there are several things we do not know. First, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Second, we do not know the power of the spiritual forces that came against that individual. Third, we do not know what we would have done in the same circumstances. Wow. What a quote to set things to rights. Because sometimes we come at it and I think, you know, man, they just, they didn't even try. They didn't even give their best effort. Or we might say, um, you know, I'd have done this in that circumstance. Or I'd have said that. Or I'd have gone here. I wouldn't have done that. That's beneath me. But we don't know. We really don't. Have you ever surprised yourself? Have you ever done something or said something or or got entangled in some kind of controversy? You thought, man, I... I'd have said five minutes ago, that would have never happened of me. We surprise ourselves because we don't really know the seeds of sin that reside in our heart until we see them flourish in our life. More than ever, we need the greater grace that James says he gives greater grace because we are humble, we come before him and Christ gives us that grace. James says there's one judge with the power to save and destroy. And then he closes with a question in verse 12. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We might say it like this in our common tongue today. Who do you think you are? God? Who made you boss? Who made you God? That's essentially what James is saying. Who are you? And we should read these two verses and go, nobody important right now. Swindoll says this, the real problem with judging others is it comes perilously close to playing God. Here's your bottom line. I've got no room to criticize and judge another believer because there's only one room, only room for one person in this seat right here, in this throne. And it's the lawgiver and the judge. It's not Josh. When we criticize our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're getting too big for our britches. The second truth we find in this passage is verses 13 through 17. And it's this. James tells us, summarizing, don't play God when you make your plans. Don't play God when you make your plans. Listen to verse 13 and 14. James says, come now. Or you could maybe say, come on. Come on, man, like on Monday Night Football. Come on, man. You who say today or tomorrow will travel to such and such a city, will spend a year there, will do business, will make a profit. James says you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. You're like smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Did you catch the assumptions, the five assumptions that, that the individual hypothetically makes when you make a statement like that? Here's what they are. Listen, number one, I can make my own schedule. Today or tomorrow, we'll go here and we'll do this and so and so and so forth. I make my own schedule. Number two, I get to choose my own path. We'll go to this city or we'll go to that city or we'll go wherever it is we want to go. Number three, I can set my own time limits. Stay as long as I want. Leave when I want. Number four, I can arrange my own activities to suit me. We'll do business and and, and we'll make a profit and so on and so forth. Number five, I get to predict the outcome of my life. Instead of losing money, 
the guy here hypothetically says, I'm going to make a profit. Five assumptions built into that passage where we attempt to play God and basically plan him out of our lives by not considering his plans for our lives. James says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. In fact, it's 11.35 on that clock. We don't even know what's going to happen at 11.40, do we? We have no idea what's going to take place in our lives because we don't have the mind of God. So the person who plays God when they plan is assuming they knew all the possible outcomes of a situation. You say, well, wait a minute. You know, there's nothing wrong with planning, right? No, of course not. The scripture actually tells us to plan and be diligent and be wise in how we approach the future. But we have to do it in such a way where we consider God's plans for our lives. And we don't plan him out of our plans. Tuesday night of this past week, um, our internet went down at our house. And that's like a crisis nowadays, right? Like when your Wi-Fi goes out, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to eat for dinner now. And I don't know, you know, how am I going to get to Jack Frost because I lost my GPS and, you know, so on and so forth. When our internet goes down nowadays, it's a sad crisis. So mine goes down, and I go through the hassle of, oh, man, I've got to call Charter. And you call Charter or or any company, and you you get online or you get on the phone, and instead of a real person nowadays, what do you get? Thank you for calling Charter. You know, and you get this, like, voice-automated person. And so you're waiting for them to give you the option of going to the agent. So finally, she says, if you want to speak to an agent, I'm like, agent, as quick as I can, agent, give me a person that can give me some direction because I want my internet back. And so uh, she, this lady gets on the phone, and she's giving me all these details about how, you know, we can fix the issue tonight, possibly. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, okay. And so we go through all the possible scenarios to fix it, and we discover that my router has gone bad. My modem's working fine. I can plug into my computer, uh, hardwired in, and it's going to work fine. But my router's not working, so I'm not going to have Internet uh, except for on my phone. I'm not going to have Internet for the next 24 hours until this guy shows up. And so I've got to schedule a charter tech to come out to the house, and uh, I start thinking about how this is going to interrupt my plans. I've got certain things I've got to do on Wednesday. I've got places to be and meetings, and I've got such and such going on. I don't have time to, uh, to miss, uh, you know, a couple hours at the house. So I take all my stuff. I go to the house. I'm sitting down at the table, and I'm working on whatever it is I'm doing. And uh, this guy shows up, a young man, and uh, he begins to, to do some some work on the, the router, and he's kind of replacing things. And uh, I just sort of felt the Lord, you know, saying, hey, get up and give that guy a water bottle. So I go to the fridge, and I grab a water bottle, and I hand him a cold water, and he's, you know, wiping sweat off his face and kind of, you know, holds it up like, thank you. Um, he goes back to work at the end. Um, I'm on the phone uh, with someone here at the church, and we're talking, and I said something about being a pastor. So I get off the phone, and this guy looks at me, and he goes, uh, did I hear you over say, over here? You say you're a pastor, and I said, I said, yeah. I said I'm a pastor uh, right down the road, and he goes, oh, okay. He said, how long have you been doing that? And I said, well, I said I was on staff for about eight years at another church. I said I've been here about a year and a half. Uh, I said this is my first time being the preaching pastor at a church. He said, wow, man. And so we start talking about his job and what he's doing and how long he's been with Charter and where his future plans are. And I discover uh, that this guy has spent time overseas teaching, that he's got aspirations to be a middle school teacher. And uh, just awesome, man, just great conversation. And I very quickly realized that the Lord uh, put mine and this young man's path uh, kind of on a, on a collision course, as I've been saying. And uh, we start talking a little bit about church, and I, he said, where do you pastor at? And I said, well, do you live around here? He said, yeah, I live in Marion. I was like, okay, he's going to know where we're at. I said, have you heard of PG Baptist Church? He goes, yeah. Uh, I said, that's where I pastor at. He said, oh, okay, man. 
he said, well, I might have to come check it out sometime. And we had this awesome conversation. And it was like as soon as he's pulling out of the driveway, I realized that my internet went down on Tuesday, maybe for other reasons. But one of those was so I could meet this young guy. And I'm not mentioning his name in case he's visiting this morning. But so I could meet this guy and I can invite him to church. And we can build this bridge where if I see him again, I know his name. He remembers mine. And we're able to have uh, that connection right there. We have no idea when our plans get diverted a little bit, we think is a, a distraction, what really may be a divine appointment that God is putting in our lives. We really have no clue at all. Verse 14, it says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you're like smoke that appears for a little while and vanishes. If you, if you look at how this word can be translated, smoke, mist, there's another word, exhalation. And I was thinking about exhalation, like what a, a fascinating picture. Uh, in a few months, it's going to be cold. And when you're riding down the road in the morning time, you're going to see little faces bundled up in coats. And they've got book bags on, you know, and they're standing on the side of the road waiting for the bus. And if you ride by slowly, you'll see a little puff of air come out, and a little exhalation. And then that little warm breath hits that cold air, you'll see it for a second. And then what happens about two seconds later? Gone. That's a picture of life, isn't it? Some of you have suffered and struggled through losing someone close to you in the last year, in the last five years, ten years, maybe twenty, and it feels like two months. You know how quickly life passes. Uh, folks that are older than uh, myself and some young parents often look at, at young parents and say, man, the time flies by. It, it's, just, it's just gone. I was talking about that with someone on the way in this morning. We were talking about how fast time flies by and our children grow up around us. James says, your life is gone like that. It's like a smoke or a mist and it just disappears. Someone said, about the time, about the time your face clears up, your mind gets fuzzy. <laughs> about the time your face clears up, your mind gets fuzzy. How true. James says, instead, you should just say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it's a sin for the person who knows what is good to do what is good and doesn't do it. So a different mindset about our plans instead of doing just what we want is to say, if the Lord wills, then. See, sometimes what we want to do is grab our calendar and grab the, the darkest, deepest ink pen that we have and just scrawl in our plans, and this is what we're going to do. And if I could say it simply, I think what James would say is you need to pencil it in. And if God wants to erase it and reroute you according to his plan, he knows what's best, doesn't he? So let's pencil in our plans instead of trying to ink them in and say, this is how it's going to be and this is what I'm going to do because we just simply don't know. And when we grab that deepest, darkest ink pen and scrawl out what we think we're going to do, James says it comes from a heart of boastful arrogance. We're trying to sit in the wrong chair. 1 Timothy 6 verse 15 says, God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When I say that God is sovereign, here's what I'm saying. That he rules and he reigns over all of life, every second of our existence. He is the master of my moments, if he truly is who he says he is. Chuck Swindoll offers three questions that I think are helpful here. He says this, in what specific areas of my life, do I tend to go it alone? 
Think about that question. Write that down. In what specific areas of your life do you tend to kind of stiff arm God and say, I'm good, I don't need you here? Second, what decisions have I made lately where I failed to include God's perspective? Where you take your planner and you write in your plans and you kind of shove God to the side and you say, I've got my planner, I'm good. Not interested in planning you into my plans, God. Third, what decisions are on my horizon that I need to set before God and seek His will? What decisions are coming up this week? Maybe tomorrow. Maybe this month. What decisions are coming up in front of you where you need to lay this before God? Maybe lay this before God with your spouse or your entire family this morning here at the altar in just a moment. Or maybe you do it at home this evening as a family around the supper table. What decision or decisions do you need to lay before the Lord and say, I've been trying to do this thing on my own. I've been planning you out of my plans. See, for James, the problem in the church is people were pretending to play God. They're getting on dangerously slippery ground by pretending to play God, by talking down about others and judging them, and by arrogantly planning them out of our plans. Verse 17 summarizes the whole thing. It's a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. Is God knocking on your heart this morning? Is He calling you to take a step of faith or obedience? Is He calling you to step out of your comfort zone? Is He telling you that that you've got a critical tongue and you've been cutting people in your Christian family down and you need to stop? Is he telling you that you've been planning him out of your plans and it's time to say, you know what, I need to trade chairs, God. In fact, I need to get on my face on the floor and get out of the chair and let you sit on the throne of my heart. I think if James were living and writing in the south, he would say, folks, you've gotten too big for your britches. 